0: Let's turn then in our Bibles to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading from verse 5 down to the end of the chapter. I think it's verse 37. I'm not going to try and preach all of that, of course. I say that. Um, And then we'll just look at a few verses at a time, okay? So Luke 21, beginning at verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Some of his, that is Jesus' disciples, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left standing on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and that the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought up before kings and governors and on all account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand about how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to stand or will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives. And friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment to, to all that has been written. How dreadful it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days! There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled upon by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be uh, anguish, anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. But men will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until they see these things happen or have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighted down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that the day will close upon you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon those who live upon the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you might be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was, in, was teaching at the temple. Each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Amen. Sorry, that was to, to verse 38 there. Just fact check myself. Now, verse 37, if you remember from last week, we talked about the question uh, that was asked of Jesus by his disciples, verse 5. And then Jesus' reply in verse 6. And we saw how easy it is to be distracted by the outward trappings of worldly religion. How the, even the disciples who were in the presence of God, who were walking with the Messiah, had seen all the great miracles, had listened to the teachings, had insider knowledge. And yet even they were distracted by the great splendor, the pomp, the ceremony, the great do of the temple. And we looked at talked a little bit about the, the specifics of the temple, how glorious and wonderful it was. That it was only about 50 years, I think at this time it was 46 to 47 years old. That's my dyslexia kicking in there, saying numbers backwards. How that it was constructed in such a way as to catch the eye. One of the outer walls was completely Um, overlaid with gold so that in the morning time and in the evening it flashed a golden flash a very spectacular effect how there was this golden vine that wound its way through the temple overshadowing the entrance with bunches of grapes as tall as a tall man six foot, not like me but tall man and how that they gleamed They were a demonstration of what Israel was supposed to be like. And even still, during Jesus' day, they were still working on the temple. It was always a work in progress. Now, we call it the temple, because that's what we read. But really, it was Herod's temple. It was a pagan temple built in Israel. And it was Herod's way of trying to conform, to control, to direct Israel. And to bribe them by offering them a a gift, the renovation or the renewal of their temple. The temple that had stood there beforehand was Zerubbabel's temple, which was satisfactory. It wasn't really, you wouldn't have caught, you wouldn't have gone, oh, what a wonderful building that was. It was just okay. It was satisfactory. It functioned in the way that it was supposed to go. It's not something that you would have written about. It wasn't, it wasn't one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was just okay. But when Herod received Israel as part of his territories from Caesar, he made a bargain with the, the leaders of Israel to renovate it. And again, it was his gift to them, but it came out of a gift with conditions. He didn't just do it for the Jews. He did it for basically all of the peoples that he governed. He did some great splendid gift for them, a renovation. Herod himself, he was called Herod the Great for a reason. He was a great man in the worldly sense. He was a scholar. He was an architect. He was a warrior and a uh, a general, a musician, personal friend to Julius Caesar, a uh, very famous, world famous guy. So There's no surprise that the disciples' head was turned, that their attention was taken by this building because it was magnificent. It really was a work of art. It was something designed to evoke a feeling of worship, and I, I use the the illustration if if you've ever been to one of those great cathedrals, medieval cathedrals in Europe. Uh, I've been to York Minster. I've been to some. St. Paul's or St. Peter's in London. These great magnificent buildings that when you walk into, all of a sudden it sucks all the noise out of you. Even a big noisy, a little noisy Irishman like me. You go in and all of a sudden you start talking like this. You know? It's all shadowy and dark and the flickering, flickering lights of the fake candles. They have fake candles in them these days. Sometimes when you go in they have a choir somewhere, some small boys ah, chanting away in the background or sometimes these days they have it even just it's a recording you know they don't have any real people they have a cd and somewhere 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 there's speakers splendid magnificent i think one of the times when sarah and i went back to ireland we visited Downpatrick and the, the 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 cathedral that is dedicated to saint patrick it's it's actually built in the same place where saint patrick of ireland is buried and we went in and it's it's from the 17th, 8th, uh, 16th century and it's all wooden and magnificent and things all hand carved and you're like, wow, and it smells old and dusty and, and evokes this kind of history, you know, and then you turn a corner and it's the gift shop and it ruins it because it's all glittery, Irish, tat, you know, n- nonsense, you know. May the Lord bless you. Yeah. And little, you buy little rosary beads and stuff. It's ridiculous. Okay. But you know the, the, the actual building is designed to evoke a, a, a reaction of some kind of outward worship. You think this is a sacred space. And this is what had happened here. And the disciples had been distracted by it. And of course, the lesson there for us is that we should not be distracted by the outward pomp and splendor of worldly religion. That Jesus was not concerned with an earthly temple. His focus was upon the heavenly temple, the church of God, and, and the redemption of his people. He then, Jesus goes on and answering this. I love this. When they're pointing out the glories and the wonders, Jesus kind of just... Flippantly throws out what's about to happen to the temple. About to happen. It happens 40 years later. He pulls back the veil. He's not prophesying. But he's saying. What's going to happen. He knows the judgment. Why? Because he pronounced the judgment upon the temple. And upon Israel. And he says to them. See these massive stones? And they were massive. Think of of this backdrop. Some of the stones were that tall. I told you that the the marble pillars that surrounded the building were 40 feet long. And they were so wide it took several men holding hands to, to, to go around one. They were all carved out of single blocks of marble. I mean, just that's wealth and splendor and majesty. We're not talking about some small building. We're talking about a building that would rival any of them, the medieval cathedrals. Huge building. It gave the impression of always having been there. It was built and designed to give the impression that it had been from eternity past and would last to eternity future. And yet Jesus says this building, not one block left upon another, He just pulls back and he shows the the temporary nature of earthly worship. How that nothing in this world that's made by the hands of man will last. That we cannot trust in our temporal surroundings. And so that is, of course, as they are leaving the temple and they're looking around. Now the Bible tells us in the other Gospels, I think in Matthew Gospel... Matthew's Gospel, that as they go to the Mount of Olives, the hill that is called the Mount of Olives, they go across and they're there and they're looking across the valley and as they look across the valley, you can see the temple in all its splendor. And it's there then they ask these questions. Teacher, verse 7, when? When will these things happen? And what will the sign that they are about to take place? And what is that that they will, about to take place. Now, this is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Now, there has been some debate through history, as I found out this week as I was studying this, whether what is written in Luke is the Olivet Discourse. Now, I think, of course, it is because it's the same time, same place. But there has been some debate because they differ. There is... some information here that's not in the other one, Some information to the other ones that's not here. But I can think we can safely say because it says at the end of the chapter, 37, 38, that every day he preached in the temple, then every evening he went to the, the to the uh, the hill that is called the Mount of Olives. And this question is obviously asked to him after he's finished his preaching, and they were somewhere else. So. Two and two equals four. They were on the Mount of Olives. And this is the, that discussion from a different direction. From someone else's point of view. Someone else heard some, some, uh, some of the stuff that was said. That wasn't recorded in some of the other Gospels. And now it's recorded in this. This is probably the single largest answer to any question that the Lord Jesus Christ ever gave. You know that when we read a question... That Jesus that the answer to any question that Jesus has ever asked it's normally two three four lines long Jesus was right to the point kind of guy this is the single largest response Jesus ever gives it's the longest single record of him speaking outside the, the Sermon on the mount but that was a sermon but this is the answering to a question' it's f- very important. Important for obviously the disciples who were there. But the Holy Spirit thought it important to record it for all of history. Like in the time that we live, we don't really give much thought to the end of the world. If we we all kind of smile a little bit like myself, we will smile the end of the world. We we, we don't believe in disasterism or, or catechism or not catechisms we believe in catechisms forgive me <laughs> cataclysmic endings you know we, we belong to that scientific generation that has been brought up in the millions and millions of years you know the world has existed for millions and millions of years and will continue for millions and millions of years now if you're a believer you don't believe that the Bible says that God created the world in Six days, and on the seventh day he rested. He didn't create it in seven days. He created existence as we know it in six days. And on the seventh day he rested. Not meaning that he was tired, it means that he just enjoyed what he had created. We, as believers in our generation, we have become desensitized to the idea of an end, a sudden end. A cataclysmic end. And yet the Bible, especially the Lord Jesus Christ, teaches very clearly of a cataclysmic end. And as Christians, we must hold that as part of our Christian faith. Not just that Jesus died for my sins, and not just that one day he will return. We know those things to be true. But that we must also remember that one day he will return and then it is over. He also, the Bible also tells us that, that there were things happen before he returns. Were, he calls them signs of the end of the age. Now, and I'm not a big signs of the end of the age kind of guy. I've read enough history. You know me, I'm a history nerd. Right now I'm reading the, the uh, a book about the eschatology of the 15th and 16th and 17th century. And some of the things that men taught in those days. Some of the famous Puritans and Luther and Calvin. Some of the things that they believed. We're obviously wrong. Why? Because they didn't happen. <laughs> they, you know, they put dates on things, or they they said, Well, this because this has happened, we can see right now the end of the Roman Empire. Christ is going to return at any moment. And yet here we are, and Christ still has not returned. So we, we always need to be very careful in our understanding of the term end of days or the end is coming we must always be very careful not to put dates or some kind of line that says "Well, over this Christ because we don't know Jesus tells his disciples when they ask him in another place he says that it's not to you it's not being given to you the knowledge of the knowledge of when and where and how but we are to have a living knowledge that time as we know it will cease. That there will come a cataclysm, a, a, an end of days event, when the Lord will return. And Jesus here, talking to his disciples, makes that very clear. Indeed, in Judaism of Christ's day, they had a very clear ecclesiology, not ecclesiology, eschatology, forgive me. They had a very clear understanding of what was going to happen. And their understanding was the Messiah would come. He would decimate and destroy the Gentile nations. He would set up some kind of Israeli empire empire. And that he would rule the world and that the Israelis would take over and they would have the great Israeli Empire. And if you read the Talmud and the, the Mis whatever it's called, I can't remember, forgive me. I read them this week. And you you see from like the fourth book of Ezra the prophecies there from their Apocrypha books. They really believed in a, a savage and destructive coming of the Messiah. There will be no more, what was the word? There will be no greater conqueror than the Messiah. He will trample the nations. And I mean, they they were really into like him putting down men, women and children, genocide, the end has come. No holes barred. So, The Jews of Jesus' time, he's not talking to people who have no fixed understanding of the end times. He's not speaking to a blank page. He's speaking to people who have a fixed end times understanding. But it's wrong. Their understanding of the end times is wrong. They believe at this time, this week, this weekend, that Christ may establish his kingdom and that the nations might be destroyed and that his throne would be Jerusalem and he would rule from that temple. See that big temple there? That's going to be ours. Jesus destroys their false thinking. But then he begins to answer their questions and that's what we want to look at today verse 8 and verse 9 and I, I might just stay in verse 8 and 9 and we'll have some other stuff prepared but we'll try and keep up. verse 8 and 9 watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name claiming i am he and the time is near do not follow them when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now, I'm a great believer in knowing who is Jesus talking to. The pronouns are very important. Is Jesus simply talking to the, to the disciples and only to the disciples? To the Jews and only to the Jews? Or is there a wider Connotation there. I think here in this sense he is talking to the to his disciples and to the Jews to the generation that he's in there and then at this present time. And he says to them, Watch out that you are not deceived. The word for watch out is one of Jesus' favorite expressions. Take heed. Be on guard. It's that be aware, be self-aware. Jesus used a lot. Why? Because he knows that we're sheeple often. You know, we just go along for whatever is easiest, whatever gives us the most convenient life. We just do things for the sake of doing them because it's convenient. But here in this text, he warns his disciples about the danger of convenient faith. Be on your guard. Keep watch. Watch out and do not be deceived. The idea for being deceived, in some Bibles, it might say terrified. In the Swedish, I think it says script, I'm not quite sure. Because I can't remember. But in the Old English, it says terrified. The word here in the Greek means petrified. To be so afraid that you faint. That you fall down. <sighs> Don't be so frightened that you're overcome by fear. Don't be so distracted. And I like again the word petrified. It means to, to be so afraid you can't move. We all know that the human, human beings, all animals... Or hard, hardwired with the the fight or flight. You know, when danger comes, you either fight or you run away. I've always tried to teach my boys that he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day, you know. And then run away. (laughs) We're all hardwired with that response in our nature. It's instinctual. But here he's saying that, don't be so overcome by fear that all you do is sit there, you're, you can't move, your feet are rooted to the spot that you're overcome that you can't oh We are to watch that we are not so deceived, so distracted that we are paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by the fear. Fear of being able to do something. What should I do? What should I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yes, no. Yes, no. Oh, I don't know. Jesus is warning his disciples not to become inactive. Not just to be sheeple. Not just to be those who follow the crowd because they don't want to be seen as different And then he says, For many will come in my name. There will be many who represent him, many who claim to represent him. Many who claim that and I think this is I mean this is terrible. Claiming I am he. Now in the original Greek, the word he is not there. That's an inference. It says, claiming I am. That those who come. In Christ's name will claim that I am, meaning that they speak for God. And again, the inference here is, in, in, in our modern Bibles, they' would say that "I am He, but really what they're saying is that I am God. I am the highest authority. And really all they are is a, a false representation of God, a false gospel. And they claim that the time is near. That they they are trying to motivate people by fear. Trying to to organize people and force them to follow. I don't know if you've ever read the history of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I personally have. It's very interesting. And it's almost like, I mean, if they made a film of it, you wouldn't believe it. You would say that's science fiction. That couldn't be true. Oh my goodness, it really is real. Seven day Adventist Church in in uh in America especially. Crazy. Absolutely manic. They believed that Jesus was was supposedly coming again in the eighteen hundreds 1859. And they spoke for God. They were all like, Oh, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And they, they especially people like Samuel Snow and um, Miller, I can't remember his first name. Um, These men, they they were great communicators and they spread fear. They showed through, it was the, the 70th week of Daniel and all these complicated diagrams and arrows and highlighter pens and they manipulated people's fears. They pointed to world events and they said, this is going to happen, that's happening. Oh, it's the end of the world. You know, And frighteningly, they were very successful. I mean, they were tremendously successful. There were many from the orthodox, everyday denominations, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, even the Baptists. Their heads were turned by this new tweak of theology. And they began to follow after. And I'm not just saying like a hundred or two hundred We're talking thousands, tens of thousands of people were swept by this new teaching. And then they had a revelation. God spoke to them. And they gave a prophecy that on this time, at this place, on this day, at this time, at this place, the Lord Jesus will return. And of course, he was going to return in America. You know, because... The Bible doesn't talk about him returning to Israel, but anyway, he was going to appear in America on a certain mountain, and all the people were like this. And so the people were like, "You know, what we, the, the 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 leadership of the church of the movement said we need to prepare an offering for him." Now I I skip a lot of details, blah blah, and I want to keep it as simple as possible. Enough, I make light. I apologize, but. But this actually did happen. We need to make an offering from them. So people sold their houses, all their belongings. They didn't give them away. They sold them. They sold their children's stuff. Except for the clothes that they were wearing. They gave the the money in their wallet, the the, the money that they had collected by selling all of their stuff. And they gave it to the elders of the church who collected it in a good offering basket for the Lord. And then they all went up the top of the mountain and they were all singing their kumbayas or whatever they sang in the 18th century, 19th century. And, um, and they waited. They had their clocks. I guess they had their clocks like this, didn't they? And they were waiting. And they were waiting. And five, four, three, two, one. And I don't want to shock you, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. Christ did not return and they were all like, what's going on? And you think people would, would wake up to themselves and say, hold on, I've been conned. Give me everything back. But people didn't. Our sin, there must be sinners among us that have kept Christ from returning. Who among you are sinners? Hypocrites and not true Believers. And then one of the leaders had a secondary revision, saying, oh, Jesus did re- return, except he returned invisibly. And he's in heaven. But he's going to return visibly during this time. We had it wrong because of, there was changes in the Roman calendar. And because of the changes in the Roman calendar way back in the third century, uh, it messed up our counting. And now we know the exact date. We all know. And they're like, oh, that explains it. And they went through the dance again. Same place, same different time. They raised a second collection, of course. Gave it to the elders, and I don't want to shock you or surprise you, but Jesus didn't return. And so afterwards, people were, of course, were penniless and destitute. You know, the mothers and fathers and children—they had nothing, and they so we went to the elders and said, oh, "Come." <laughs> Christ didn't return, but could we have our our money back? No, that that belongs to Christ. That's Christ's money now. You can't touch it. It's whatever the word they used, uh, sacred. Koban. It's it's holy money. You can't have it anymore. It belongs to Christ to be used by his church for the well-being of his people. (laughs) Give us the money back that we gave you. and they never got it back for the most these things really happened this is, of course is one example because again I, I read history it's recent history within the last 200 years we like to think of ourselves as being too intelligent too modern it's hard to deceive us you know but people less than 200 years ago were just like you and I. There's no real difference between, but they have been deceived. They gave in to a spirit of deception. They were not self-aware. They were not on guard. They did not examine the scriptures to see if these things were true. And because of that, and because they allowed men and women who proclaimed that they could speak for God? They had visions, and they accepted those visions as the word of God, like the Roman Catholics do with the Pope when he speaks from the throne. He speaks ex cathedra, the words of God, the binding words of God. It's like God Himself on Earth speaking, and to disobey is a a mortal sin straight to hell. Really? Really? Jesus warns his disciples that then and now because I don't think there's ever a thing as redundant scripture. The Holy Spirit had this recorded that you and I might learn lessons from it, that we might Be aware that we we might be on watch, that we might guard ourselves, that we might not be taken advantage of by those who would seek to muddy the waters and teach error, by those who would seek to deceive and to take advantage of God's people. Do not be deceived. Whether this was simply fulfilled in the first century, I don't think... We can just simply say it was fulfilled in the first century. Because in the last 200, 300 years, we've seen more Christian cults spread worldwide than ever before. But the Mormons, whether they're Christian or not, I don't know. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh day Adventists. Top three we have Oneness, Pentecostalism. I believe that's a cult, I don't believe it's Christian. It denies the trinity. We have the word of faith movement. We have easy believism. We have state church ism, nominalism, infant baptism isms, adult baptism isms that teach that a person is born again by other means than faith alone. Though, yes, these words were spoken to the disciples of Jesus' time and they were as relevant to them as they are relevant relevant to us today. We must be on our guard for those who would come in Christ's name, proclaiming that they are him, functioning in a fashion that they're speaking from him, We we can't allow those people to deceive us. We can't allow those people to go on actively deceiving others. Jesus says at the end of verse 8, do not follow them. Do not follow them. And that's very that's a powerful He doesn't mean just like you know secret agent man following them in the street, seeing where they're going. Is the idea of being their disciple? The disciples followed Jesus. That doesn't mean they just went everywhere where he went. You know, they, you know, they lived their lives according to his teachings. They were his followers. Again, that doesn't mean they stalked him. Or they followed him on Facebook. They sought to live their lives according to the principles of his teachings. They sought to become like him. Not in his divinity, but in his lifestyle. In his outlook towards heaven. They adopted his beliefs and his teachings and made them their own. They were his Followers. And Jesus tells us that we should not become the followers of these false teachers, these men and women, people who would rise up at the end time or as a, an indication of end time. Again, you and I, we sensible people, we normal people, we orthodox people, the good looking of heaven. No, I wish. You say, "Well, that's fine. We, we we would not be among these people." I wish to God that's true. So easy, though, to fall into the trap. So easy to be motivated and manipulated. So easy to be to be scooted to one side or to another, or to accept. I think that the greatest change when I became reformed or reforming wasn't simply that I, I changed from one theology to another, was that there was a separation and a non-acceptance. There used to be that we, we were all-inclusive. I don't necessarily believe what you believe, but I'm okay, you know, that you, you hold on to it. And I'm what I'm talking about is that the crazy people, you know, with, with the, their... Holy Ghost shotguns, and they're barking like dogs, and they're meowing like cats, and, you know, they're what I, I, I can't, I'm not joking, they're, they're wild, west, Christian cowboys, where they throw the Holy Spirit lasso, you know, and catch people, and then people fall down in, in their seats and stuff, you know, wherever the lasso lands, I have a word for you, brother. You know, though we ourselves may not have always, you know, as a charismatic, did charismatic things, but we were, we allowed the craziness, we accepted it as just a different expression, not necessarily the expression we did, but it's false. It's people functioning and claiming that they are the I am. They may not articulate it that way, but they are functioning in that way. Jesus warned his disciples, do not be deceived, do not follow them. Another expression perhaps would be the false gospel. A gospel of convenience, an easy believism. A gospel of come easy and go easy. A gospel of convenience. There is no such thing. There is but one true gospel. And it costs your life. You become the slave of Christ. You're no longer your own. You've been bought by a price. And your heart is changed forever. And your life is changed forever. And you become his. We live in a time when people become Christian one week and then stop being Christian the next and then become Christian again. They backslide throughout the week and then come to Christ again on the Sunday. There is no such thing, beloved. Because your faith is not your own. It is a gift. Of course, there are times in our faith when we are stronger than, uh, at times, and weaker than others. There are times when we can stumble and overcome by sin, but we cannot renounce Christ. We cannot turn our back upon him. We belong to him. What happens there is we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we change our lives and we rededicate ourselves in a true and real form. It's the difference between the repentance of Judas and the repentance of Peter. The Bible says that Judas threw the money into the temple. Remember the 30 pieces of silver? He threw it into the temple and the The Pharisees wouldn't even touch it. Oh, blood money. What oh, it's unclean, it's unclean. It came from them. But when it was returned, they wouldn't touch it. Oh, hypocrite, hypocrite. And in his repentance, he went out and hung himself. The word there is not really repentance, it's regret. He regretted that he did what he did. He regretted that he was caught. He regretted that everyone knew. He regretted that he had caused an innocent man's death. And it did not lead him to, that, that sorrow was not godly sorrow that led him to repentance. It was sorrow, self-pity. And in his self-pity and self-hate, he destroyed himself. Peter, on the other hand, follows Christ. He's there while Christ is being interrogated and tortured. And the little girl comes up, remember that little little girl with the big mouth? And she says, you're one of them, aren't you? And he's like, no, 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 And they're all looking at him in, in the far light going, but, and she's, you must be one of them, because you speak like a Galilean. And then he begins to swear, and he uses offensive language, and he uses the, the name of God, in fact, Denounces Christ, and he does it several times. That's a much serious sin. You might you might say, well, no, no, no. but here was the one whom Jesus said, "Well, on this, this is my chief guy—the guy who had been with Christ when His revealed glory was manifest. Man who whom Christ had helped walk upon the water and all these other things." And yet here he is, this guy who was closer to Jesus in many ways than anyone other than the Apostle John, perhaps, whom Jesus loved. And he denies him, not just once, twice. And then Jesus restores him, of course. Jesus restores him. But his repentance led, through godly sorrow, back to repentance, and he was able to come back. There is a difference between this kind of um, easy believism, convenient Christianity. We should not follow it. We should not give credence to it. We should not acknowledge it as a possibility, as a maybe, as a perhaps. But there should be a, a denial of it. And then Jesus goes on in verse nine. When you hear of wars and revolutions or turmoils, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Really what we're saying here is the Christians should not be affected by world events. Your inner peace should not depend on what happens in American politics. Or what happens in European politics. I haven't a clue what happens in European politics. What happens in local politics? What happens with one nation coming against another? The Middle East? Or even Israel? What happens in South America? What's going to happen with China! whatever these other conspiracy theories that are alive upon the net these days, George Soros or whatever these people's names are. Christians, we should not be swept along with the panic, with the terror, with the paralyzing forces. We we should not look around us and be held captive by current events. we must understand that such things must have happened and will happen again. They're going to happen. And when they do happen, it should not overcome us or affect us. It should not make us petrified in that sense where we can do nothing. Where we're powerless and helpless and shocked and surprised. All too often, we Christians believe in getting betterisms. Everything's going to get better. Everything's going to work out for the best in the end. I don't believe in happy endings. I'm a really cynical kind of guy. Okay? <laughs> I just don't believe in happy endings. Uh, I'm always wonderfully surprised when things happen, happen well for us but we have been programmed by generations of the Joel Osteen disease, virus your best life now where, where we're supposed to live in this great heavenly post-millennial kind of kingdom of earth kingdom of heaven upon earth the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus didn't teach that. I, we, we live in a wonderful place. We live in Finland. And thank God for Finland. We live in a place where we enjoy unbelievable freedoms. But we've only had these un, 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 unbelievable freedoms for just over 100 years. For just over 100 years. Before 1913 there was no freedom of religion in freedom. Not really. Yeah, you had Baptists. Yeah, you had congregational churches in some sense. But they still had to belong to the Lutheran church. They still had to pay their taxes to the Lutheran church. If we go back further than that, to the 1500s, time of great revival and revolution in Europe, a time of great awakening, but yet also a time of tremendous violence, plagues and death and famines and all kinds of pestilence. But, you know, let's not become those who are taken, who are, get taken by surprise when things don't work out the way we want them to, when things get hard. Let's not be among those who panic and freak out when persecution or difficulty should arise. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has warned his people that such things will happen and we must be prepared for that time. I'm not saying that we should be preppers, okay? I'm not saying that. But spiritually ready. For when things begin to happen. When government lockdowns. When the outlawing of our faith. That could never happen. In history it has happened so many times you wouldn't believe. Look up the Huguenots. Look up Baptists, early Baptists in America, and how we were outlawed and considered terrorists. (laughs) Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Fifth monarchy people. We need to be prepared in our hearts and guard our hearts that we don't just follow like sheep, but we stand in the words of Christ prepared and ready and with the knowledge that such things can and will happen. We have lived in a very sheltered age, an age of unprecedented freedom and peace. But we don't have that guarantee that it will continue. And I'm not saying if things go to the worst, well, that's a sign that Jesus is coming. Well, I think it is, but I can't tell you when and where. It might be tomorrow, it might be in a hundred years. I don't know. I can't honestly tell you, but I, I don't see anything that withholds it. There's no, no thing, no great sign that must be accomplished. Christ could return. Beloved, let us take heed to the warnings of Christ. Let's not be deceived. Let's stay on our guard. Let's maintain self-watch that our hearts don't become complacent and lazy. Choosing convenience over Christ. What's good for me? What's easy for me? We belong to him. We are his. Beloved, Jesus warned That throughout time, and I would say increasingly more so at the end of time, that false teachers would rise up claiming to speak in his name and indeed going so far as to say that they speak him. If there was ever a time when that is universally true in the church of God, this would be that time when we have people giving prophecies and speaking with the Spirit of Christ, left, right and centre. Let us not be swept along with these people. Let us not be panicked by them. Let us be those who stand in self-control and in order. We're not panicked. We're not enthusiastic. No. People, you know, I don't know, again, I, I, because I had spent 19 years in the charismatic Pentecostal movement uh, know every trick in the book so often times ministers whip people into a frenzy they use the tricks of emotionalism they, they, they get people excited and enthused indeed one of the early names for charismatics was enthusiasts enthusiasts or fanatics Enthusiasts, I like that. Ian Murray talks about that in one of his books. Enthusiasts, these enthusiasts. Let us not be caught up or deceived. Let us not become so hard in our heart that we just deny everything. Let us see and recognize these things for what they are. They are indicators indicators that the time is readily approaching, that Christ is coming. Every day that was past is a day closer to the coming of Christ. And that we must remember that we do believe in end times. We do believe that there is an end of time. That this existence that we live today will not always continue. That there will come a moment in time that it will end. Not in a million and a million and a million years. Not in when the our sun slowly swells up and engulfs us. Not when an asteroid hits the earth, you know or not even a a virus wiping out all of humanity. When Christ returns when God pours out his wrath upon the earth. When this creation, as we see it, all of existence, to the furthest star that has ever been discovered, is burnt away, melted like wax. And in its place, God creates a new heavens and a new earth, untainted by sin. We, as Christians, believe in the end of time. Christ taught on the end of time. He give explicit instructions to his disciples. Let us not remain ignorant about these things. Let us not remain casual to these things. As the followers of Jesus Christ, let us follow him. Let us take his words and apply them to our lives and live in the light of them, demonstrating to the world around us that is swept by the fear of, of the, the things that happen in this world. American politics. Middle East politics. Russia. A change in social values. Capitalism. Socialism. Pfft. None of those things matter to us. Christ matters. And the economy of his kingdom matters. Let us continue to lift up the name of Christ. Let us walk in such a way in our lives that it demonstrates our great confidence in him. So that when the hopelessness, the people who are caught in darkness, they look upon you and I and they see us as a witness, that we glean, that we are at peace, that we are confident, that we're not caught up or swept aside. Also, in, the, in the, the great falling away, the great heresies that are to come, this great infusion of false teachers, this confusion. I think that's a great name for a collection of false teachers, a confusion of false teachers. You know? That we, we are not swept aside by every false teaching that we, we are not affected and infected by some prophet as he comes with a dictate, whether it be the Pope, whether it be the leader of a, of a denomination. We look to Jesus Christ to be our prophet, priest and king. He is the one who guides us and leads us and it's in him we hope. We don't hope in Kyle. We don't hope in Calvin. We don't hope in Spurgeon. It's Christ. And in him alone do we trust. His words shall never pass away. Beloved, let's stand fast and fast in this time of shifting sands and confusion, of fear and despondency. Let us be confident. Let us burn brightly. Let us display to the world all around us that we have a hope that they do not understand or know. Let us proclaim gleefully to this world that Jesus Christ is the answer. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness your mercy to us as always. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us. Lord, as we study these things, that you would help us to live them in our lives. The Lord God, that we would be self-conscious. We would be aware of our own hearts and our own minds of our own lies, of the things that we do or the things that we don't do, Lord, that we will not be deceived, self-deceived or trusting in the, the words or actions of others. Lord, we won't be sheeple, Lord, people following the crowd and trusting that, it, that it's right just because everybody else is doing it. Oh, Lord, help us. You give us instruction through your holy word. You give us light, Through divine scripture. Lord Jesus we pray that you would help us. Lord to be able to put those things into practice. Not to be afraid. Lord God we pray that you would protect us. From the influence of of those who would come. Claiming to speak in your name. Lord those who declare that they they are you. In some sense. Lord please help us. Lord we know that that as this world goes along with its wars and revolutions turmoils and its difficulties, Lord, with all the the things that are going on and the great uncertainty and fear and and confusion that that is so en masse at this present time, we thank you that we, we live on a solid ground, that, Lord, we live firmly founded in the rock. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens on this world, that we are secure and safe. Lord, we thank you that, that we do live in this time of unparalleled peace. We ask, O oh God, that, that that peace that you have given us, though it may be taken away from us, that our peace that, that protects our hearts, that peace that is beyond all understanding, may, might be made manifest to the people around us. Let them see, Lord, the truth of your words. Let them see within us the difference. Oh, Lord, that you might glorify your name and draw people to you, that they might believe and be born again. Oh, Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.